want to thank our team for continuing to teach us and lead us through Colossians, Kevin and Tom and Omer. It was fantastic and such a gift to be able to sit and learn with you all. I'm really grateful for that chance to lead us up here into the Advent season. We are going to focus uh, today on, this is a big surprise, the Christmas story. And so sit tight. We do it every year. And uh, it's I don't know if you're familiar, it's part of a calendar system we've got going on. And in the Christian community, in the Christian church, we also have a liturgical calendar. For those of you who grew up in churches that were non-denominational, you got to hear whatever was on your pastor preacher's mind, no matter what. And for those of you who grew up in more liturgical settings, you got to hear what other people had decided your pastor would preach on that day, no matter what. So all of those kinds of differences in between. Well, I grew up in a Lutheran church, and I love Advent. I was used to a tree coming up in the front and um, very specific Greek symbols that I had no idea what they were that I think somebody at some point made the determination in the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America that those white styrofoamed Greek symbols um, indicating various theological truths about Jesus would appear on a tree. And so I didn't know what they were. One was a P with an X also involved. There was a lot of things. And I just learned later on that that was something important. But also the liturgical, the altar clothes changed, the, the stoles that the pastors and the acolytes wore changed. And as the season changed outside, the church season changed too. So because I'm the senior pastor here at Spark, we also celebrate Advent. And I'll wait for the rest of you all to get all the other stuff I described get going. Next year, <laughs> develop a subcommittee. I'd like to see some Greek symbols showing up just <laughs> Um, but I, I wouldn't mind uh, that we do at least have some candles and um, the very good acolyte. Does, any, does anyone know what an acolyte is? Yes. So when growing up that moment, you were the person that day, typically youth, that was required by the number of service hours that I also had due every month to serve as the person that would light the candle. And we had big candles up front, like big candle stands that would go up and then down again. Yes, anybody? Okay. And there were two. And so there were two acolytes and you had to time it. And so you'd walk carefully. And of course, your mom made you wear ridiculous shoes that you were sure were going to slip on the very polished hardwood floors. And every time it was my turn, I would always think, don't burn the church down. Don't burn the church down. Don't. And that would just be my one prayer. And then you'd look over at your buddy who was also lighting, and inevitably somebody would get stuck on some stubborn candle, and you'd be like, just move on, move on. You just have to skip, make the decision. That candle can't be lit, and skip moving on. And that would bother me the whole service that I had had to skip the candle. So we don't need to put that into our service. It's too much stress. That's cool. We're good here. All right, so join us together then as we move into Advent. And today we're going to be talking about hope. And we're going to be looking at the story of Elizabeth and Zachariah. I know you've heard me teach on this story before. Oh, well. I love this story. It is part of our Jesus story. And hopefully, again and again, as we turn the gem over and over of the text, we will see new things in it every time we study it, won't we? Because God is new every day, making things new in this world and making us new, and we are changing and shifting, and what we hear shifts and changes as we continue to read and study through our story. Let's look in the Gospel of Luke. Luke says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was descended from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. 
Let me just stop for a second and tell you that Luke has given you a lot of really important information. And can anybody name some of the bits of information that would be important right now and that the readers would have pictures popping in their head the moment they heard certain things? What? Days of Herod, who was who? King of Judea, the king of the Judeans, of that geographical region of Judea. The people lived there, also known as the Jews. Is he a Jew? No, he's not. Maybe half. Uh, through a forced conversion, so he's an Idumean. Who does he work for? Who let him be the king? Rome. There's all these things involved. It's as if I were to say, in the days of George Washington, right? Or in the days of Abraham Lincoln, or in the days of Obama, or in the days of Donald Trump. You have different pictures that pop into your head for all of those different people, and you have different ideas of time, and that was true also of Luke's audience, okay? So he's giving us a whole bunch of information. There's a priest named Zechariah. He belongs to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife is also descended from Aaron, who's also the priestly line. Her name is Elizabeth. Both of them are righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. They're good neighbors. They do things the right way. They study Torah. They've got it all down. But they had no children because they were disobedient, because God is punishing them. No, because they're super old and Elizabeth's barren. Just matter of fact, Luke's just giving you some information as to how things are going. Once, when he was serving as priest before God during his second section's turn of duty, he was chosen by law according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord to offer incense. So this is Zechariah. He's of the priestly line. He's going to get chosen by law, kind of like a roll of a dice. Whose turn is it today? All right, it's your turn. He gets to go on in, and he's going to offer incense to the Lord. And this is in Jerusalem in the temple of the Lord on top of the Temple Mount platform that Herod built. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. And then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and fear overwhelmed him. And the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Always I hear that and think easier said than done, right? Um, For your prayer has been heard, which is a really wonderful thing. Would you love like an angel of the Lord just show up to you and go, I know you might be afraid by my presence, but I am here to tell you, we've been listening, right? Like God's heard you, and we're about to do something about that. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. Like this is incredible. This is such a beautiful thing, because how long had Zechariah been praying that prayer, even though very old, even though faced with all of the physical realities of his body and Elizabeth's body, But somehow, there's some hope still in him where he's not stopped praying the prayer. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's an interesting commandment, isn't it? It has to do with the Nazarite vow, and you can go and read about that in the book of Numbers, about what do you do in order to sort of be set apart from God from the very beginning. And there are others in our Bible who've been set apart for God from the very beginning. Samson was one, um, worked out in a weird way. Um, And then, um, (laughs) or not so much. And then also we have Elijah and others, right? And some people would take that Nazarite vow for just a short period of time, you know, like... um, sober January or something like that. And then other people would take it for their entirety of their lives. And in this case, John is to take this vow for his whole life. 
He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and with the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children, thank the Lord, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Don't you think if you were writing that and you're a parent, you would be like to turn the hearts of the children to the parents, right? That would be the way we want, but that's not what's written, so good luck, parents. All right, Zechariah said to the angel, how can I know this will happen? Prove it, bud. I'm an old man, and my wife's old too. Always a good thing you want your husband to say about you. Um, And the angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. I love how he doesn't explain anything. Gabriel's not like, okay, well, here's what's going to happen. You know, a day to the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. So old doesn't really count here. It's fine. And don't worry, God's in charge of biology and all these other things. Instead, he's just like, I'm Gabriel. Why are you talking to me like this? I'm standing in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you and bring this good news. And now you, you didn't believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. So you become mute, unable to speak until the day these things occur. So he's made an angel mad. So day's going very well, right? Uh, meanwhile, the people are waiting for Zechariah and wondering at his delay in the sanctuary. And when he did come out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. And he kept motioning to them, but remained unable to speak. And when his time of service was ended, he returned to his home. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. That's a phrase, isn't it? <laughs> after those days, Elizabeth got pregnant. Awesome. Great, like no, not a lot of detail. I'm sure nobody, the readers are thankful for the fact that there's not a lot of detail. But that is an interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? Because what did Zechariah come home and do? Just be like, I can't talk to you. I can't tell you this whole story. But Gabriel told me, and I don't want to argue with that guy again. Who knows what I'll lose next time. So after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she remained in seclusion, and she said, this is what the Lord has done for me in this time, when he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. That poor woman. She lived that way for such a long time. And had probably well enough, probably given up some hope that anything was going to be different, that her story was going to be any different than the way that she thought. But here she says, this is what the Lord has done for me. And she kind of hides this secret, right? Um, I think we can feel and sense her hope, her fear, her wanting it to be true, but not believing that it could actually be true. Her needing to hide that hope for fear of what would happen if it didn't come true. For fear of having to go back out and explain one more time to everybody why she didn't have the family she, want, she longed for. But the Lord has taken away the disgrace she's endured from among the people. Scene break. Angel's now going to go show up to Mary. We're going to talk about that next week. And we come back. Angel shows up to Mary. Mary goes and visits Elizabeth. And now she's going to leave. Mary's going to leave and let Elizabeth have her own moment. The time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown his great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after 
name him Zachariah after his father. That's what you do. But his mother said, no, he's to be called John, Yochanan. And they said to her, but none of your relatives has this name. And they began emotioning to his father to find out what he wanted to give him. And that's so funny because he's not deaf, is he? They can't speak to him. He's the one that's mute, but they're using hand signals. I've, and it's like the rule is like, if you can't speak, we won't speak. So it's just charades for everybody. Um, to begin motioning the father, find out what name he wanted to give him. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they're all amazed. Are they amazed that he agreed with his wife? Are they amazed that he's picked a name they didn't know? I don't know. It, that he can write? I'm like, oh, you could write for nine months? We could have been doing that? You have to do charades all the time. I don't know. But they're amazed. Immediately, Zachariah's mouth is opened. His tongue is freed. And he begins to speak, praising God. It's a good lesson for all of us. If you've had some period of silence, hopefully the next words out of our mouth are praise. Fear came over all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout the entire hill country of Judea. That's a good area, y'all, and it's very hilly, so, you know, you have to work to get that message out to somebody. And all who heard them pondered them and said, what then will this child become? For indeed, the hand of the Lord was with him. And then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. That is a very incredible statement to say just because a baby's been born. Isn't it? Because Herod's still king, Rome is still in charge, but he looks on his son, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he tells everybody God is at work. God has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty savior for us in the house of his child David as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from old that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus the Lord has shown the mercy, shown the mercy promised to our ancestors, has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us that we being rescued from the hands of our enemies might serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness in God's presence all our days. And you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. The dawn from on high will break upon us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Shalom. Hope. Here we are, Sunday, December 10th, second Sunday in Advent. Even earlier in the afternoon, you guys are really pros, by the way, showing up here a bit early. It's amazing. And yet I would argue that we are in some difficult days some hard days, some days that can feel pretty heavy, where news locally and globally weigh us down, where people are in deep pain and sorrow and hurting. And here comes this story in the midst of all of that, a story of hope. Luke begins the Jesus story, interestingly enough, not with Mary and Joseph. You'd think that's like how it should start. Let's talk about the people who are actually going to bring the Son of God into the world, right? But instead he builds it and starts it right away with Elizabeth and Zechariah. Luke centers the voice and role of the older generation, connecting our past and communal memory to a continuing covenant. Elizabeth and Zechariah join the stories of other elderly, righteous, but infertile couples in the Bible. 
Abraham and Sarah, Rachel and Jacob, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, Samson's mother, Mrs. Manoah, we don't know her first name, and Elisha's patron, the great women of Shunem, etc., etc., etc. They are part of a story that is told over and over again. In fact, one of the first times an angel ever shows up and tells a really old couple, you're going to have a son, is Abraham and Sarah, right? And then they mess that up pretty quick. So I think that might be why the angel's like, this time you just go home, don't talk. You know, just go and figure that out for yourself, all right? I've told you what to do and there should be no discussion. All right. In any event, they're part of this large story. But here God is doing something different, isn't he? Because Herod holds the throne and the power, but Luke's focused on Zechariah and Elizabeth because God remembers and God promises. Zachariah's name in Hebrew actually means God remembers. And Elizabeth's name in Hebrew, Elisheva, Zachariah, and then Elisheva means God promises or God keeps God's oath. And you can hear these echoes coming through in all of it. And it's really incredibly beautiful, isn't it? That here in the midst, we're not talking about power, we're not talking about empire, we're talking about a woman and a man. I'm going to invite Felicia, our sister Felicia, to come up and read a poem to us from Drew Jackson's book, God Speaks Through Wombs. Sorry. Oh, thanks, Bob. He's coming. Yep. Oh, wait. Sorry, not good. The <laughs> empire of the sound. It's because I... It's all good. Oh, you got it. Thanks, Bob. Woohoo. Go for it. In the days of empires and puppet regimes, God speaks. Through wounds, rested and discarded because they were unviable. This is what they do. The Romes, the Babylons, the USAs, the men. Tossed to the side the de- as detritus, what they've deemed unfit to be utilized. But God speaks through wombs, birthing prophetic utterances, the object of public scorn given the power to name the happenings of the Lord. Elizabeth is her name. Say her name. It is she who will be the one through whom the covenant is kept. She, like the priestess, speaks her word while the leading male voices are shut. Enough of this unbelieving religion that masquerades as faith. Divine favor is placed on what we have disgraced. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. She speaks her word while the leading male voices are shut. God speaks through wombs, not through empires and not through power, but through this woman and through this man. And next week, as we'll see, through another young woman. So let's talk about what is Advent. Advent means coming or approach. Advent invites us to enter into the Christmas season of holy anticipation for the birth of Christ. The first people really to celebrate Advent, a coming or an approach, a hope for the coming Christ, are the people in the Gospel of Luke, are the people in this story. Elizabeth, Zechariah, Mary, Joseph, the people of Judea, the people of Galilee who are waiting, who are in need, who are longing, they are the ones that anticipate that God will remember. 
that God will keep God's promise. And Yohanan, John, means God is gracious, that God will be gracious in so doing. So if you are feeling like you are living in some dark days and times, I want to let you know that the Christmas story is for you. This is a story that anticipates hope. It anticipates hope even though it's unreasonable to do so. In Jesus, we encounter God entering into the chaos, the brokenness, the pain, the injustice, the darkness of our world, taking it upon himself to heal, redeem, and restore. And this is the hope that we are still waiting for, isn't it? But as many of us have we talked about over these years together at Spark, we've talked about how we hold hope and lament in both hands. That they don't, hope does not mean that we don't grieve or mourn or sigh heavily or, or try to even just get up under the weight of the violence and the loss of life and the suffering and the pain that we see in the world. Lament can be with hope. It's okay. Those things can be together. We are strong enough to carry both. Sometimes it feels to me like I hold lament and then I hold no choice but to hope. It's not that I feel hopeful, but the alternative is just more lament. And I can't have two hands of lament. It's too heavy. So I have to move into some hope. I look about the world and I look about communities that I've invested in deeply for 20 years here and in the Middle East here and in Israel, and in Palestine, and in Gaza, here in this community and in this synagogue, and with our Muslim friends. And I look about the world and I see anti-Semitism is on the rise. And I look about the world and I see Islamophobia is on the rise. And, and I, I think to myself, have we not learned anything? Why are we still doing this? violence upon the world and upon one another. And it has felt to me since October 7th that it's very difficult to get up from underneath the lament and the grief for all of the suffering that is occurring. And I don't talk about it because I don't have answers. I can tell you about my friends who are suffering. And there are people in this church, in this community, who can tell you about their family members who are suffering in Gaza, in Palestine, and in Israel. And here, too. And I think there's a, a point where it's kind of like, well, Danielle, you know, and Spark, you, you talk about all of these things, and we try to engage, and I just want to let you know that for me, personally, this is just so heavy. My personal grief is heavy, and it remains so. And I, I don't know when it will be less, but I know that the Jesus story, the Advent story, the hope that I find here helps me. 
And so I keep reading and studying and looking and sharing in community. And you can see there's no words. I have no words to share here. This is my blank slide. I have no words to share. Only tears. And I can only tell you that I've decided that it is my job to just weep with anyone who's weeping. And good, good thing, I'm very good at that. I'm a very sympathetic crier right away, I can do it. So at multi-faith gatherings, as we read the prayers of the mothers in Arabic and in Hebrew and in English here in Palo Alto, as we extend hands, as we stand with those who are afraid, as we participate in acts of solidarity with Jewish sisters and brothers and Muslim sisters and brothers, as we do all of that, I'm just guaranteeing you that you will find me there weeping. But also hoping. Because I don't have a choice. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian who was imprisoned in Germany for his faith by the Hitler regime. And one of his last letters that he wrote to his parents as he sat in prison for his resistance was about Advent. He wrote, Advent season is a season of waiting, but our whole life is an Advent season. That is a season of waiting for the last Advent, for the time when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Celebrating Advent means being able to wait. No evil can befall us, whatever men may do to us. This is what he writes to his parents while imprisoned. They cannot serve, they cannot but serve the God who is secretly revealed as love and rules the world in our lives. We can and should also celebrate Christmas despite the ruins around us. Isn't that a difficult thing to do? And it's felt hard for me this season. Who, why should I get to celebrate while so many are suffering? But Dietrich Bonhoeffer tells us we can and should celebrate Christmas despite the ruins around us. I think of you now as you sit together with the children and with all the Advent decorations as in earlier years you did with us. We must do all this even more intensively because we do not know how much longer we have. Right after writing this letter, Bonhoeffer and fellow resistors were executed in April 1945, just weeks before the end of the war. He sent this letter home to his parents and was few more years in the prison, a few more months in the prison than was killed. But Advent isn't just a season in our Christian calendar, it is a state of being. In Advent, we're surrounded by the awareness that this posture of waiting, of longing, is our ever-present reality. Waiting, longing, and lamenting for hope, love, joy, and peace. For all those beautiful and elusive things that we can sometimes taste, reminding us that God is good but that have not come to completion. In the Bible, we have several different words for waiting in the Hebrew, and it's a prevalent theme in the Bible. Pretty much everybody's waiting. By the way, you're all still waiting too, right? That's the whole message of Jesus in the book of Revelation, is that um, it's going to happen, but you're still waiting. And so in the Bible, we have a few different words for it. Kava, wait, yachal, which is an expectant, hopeful wait. I'm just banking on that one. Huel, um, writhing or an anxious longing. I think I have that too. And chaka, a long-lasting, desperate, desperate wait. Waiting in the Bible is not passive. 
It's an act of struggle, and it's often fought in the face of despair. That anticipation and that hope, the longing, the anxiousness in it all, it's a very active work. The choice to continue to hold on to hope and to try to look forward to it, that is active. We know that we are born into a broken world and that violence and sin are daily constants in life on planet Earth and that it took a hideous death of an innocent man to free us. And we also know that there is an inexhaustible source of brightness and warmth in the person of Jesus who first appeared to us as a baby in a manger 2,000 years ago. Advent is waiting with tension between what we see with our eyes in this world and the anticipated rule and reign of the kingdom of God ushered in by Jesus. Advent is not just waiting. Advent is also the work of anticipating and readying and building the kingdom so that people will look for the king. Romans 12 has been hanging out with me for a few months now. All of October, November, and now December, I'm still with it. And in the new year, we'll be launching into a series on Romans because who doesn't mind a little bit of light lifting here at Spark? Um, So consider this an early preach on Romans 12. And by the way, preaching team, I'm choosing Romans 12 right now. So I've already signed up for that chapter. You can have the others. I think when, when I consider Paul's words here to the church, this is what it looks like to me to be in the process of waiting. It's to actually be doing quite a bit. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, on the basis of God's mercy, present yourselves, your bodies, as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we who are many have the same function. Sorry, I can't see because I'm crying. So we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members of one another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry and ministering, the teaching in teaching, the encourager and encouragement, the giver and sincerity, and the leader and diligence, compassion and cheerfulness. Here we go. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. And hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and pursue hospitality to the strangers. Are you ready? This is going to get really hard. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be arrogant, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are, 
Do not repay anyone evil for evil. But take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. And if they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. We'll talk about what that means. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Burning coals is often a a symbol, a picture of the presence of God. You guys, as we anxiously, eagerly anticipate and wait the advent of Christ, the King of Peace to come into this world, I pray that we offer ourselves up as living sacrifices and that in so doing, we love our enemies and we pursue peace. Advent this year also coincides with Hanukkah, which is known as the Feast of Dedication. It's mentioned in John chapter 10. Jesus goes to Jerusalem to celebrate it. It's quite lovely. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Hanukkah, you can go and read the story in the Maccabees, and when you take Garden to Garden, we discuss it quite a bit. But as you, many of you know, there is an organization right now called Project Menor, and it's to encourage people who aren't Jewish to stand in solidarity with people who are afraid to express their Judaism in the world. They're, they are afraid. And so people have asked me, well, if I wanted to try to show my solidarity and print out that ditto and put it in the window or whatever I might do to try to show my Jewish neighbors that it's okay and that I will love them, how do I light the candles? And I want to let you know there's a debate. (laughs) So Hillel and Shammai, before the time of Jesus, debated, how are we going to light these candles? And Shammai said, well, you're going to light all of them to start, and then every night it'll go down one candle. So the light actually decreases. Everybody's like, Shammai, that's a terrible idea. We want the light to increase. And so they said, we're going to go with Hillel. Hillel is going to light the Hanukkah this way, and the light will increase. So Hillel won, by the way. Hillel won the debate. But there's still another debate. Do you start from the right or do you start from the left? And people argue and debate this. Here's the great thing. On night eight, you can't tell who was winning that argument. That on the last night, all the lights are lit, and you can't tell who started from the right or the left. Everybody is there together. And I love this picture. A friend pointed out to me the other day as they were discussing all this with me, and they said, isn't it lovely how our disagreements can fade away the more light there is in the world? It's like, amen, let's do that. So Spark, may the light shine more brightly than our disagreements. May hope take hold in our hearts even when there is no earthly reason to believe it is reasonable. And may we see the world differently than it is, believing in the impossible that is only possible in Christ. I invite the team back up to lead us in our closing song. And I want to invite you all to the table. The table that is open and welcome to all who are hungry and thirsty and all who are waiting and longing for the banqueting table that will come again 
And we get to practice it. We get a taste tonight together. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed, and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Spark, all are welcome at this table. Come.